Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you have given to us a place and a group of friends to break the bread of your word with. We are truly privileged in this country, in this city, to be able to gather like this so freely and sing love songs to you and about you, and then to open our Bibles and really read about the things that matter. And we see how you worked with the children of Israel, and as we see them and their attitude, we see so much of our own lives reflected in them. Lord, help us to learn. Help us to mix your promises with faith, lest we be like that entire generation that just wandered around for so many years. We don't want to wander, Lord, or meander. We want to walk where you've directed us to walk and make progress with you spiritually. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I remember family vacations growing up. They were exciting times. Every summer, we would take a vacation back to Minnesota. Or at least, maybe not every year, but every few years we'd go back there. But at least every year we took long vacations. Now, as I look back on those vacations, I really feel sorry for my folks. Because there were four of us, young boys, in the back seat, And my dad was one of those ever-ready bunny drivers. He just kept going and going and going. He he never wanted to stop. He didn't want to get a hotel or a campground. Just wanted to drive, you know, a couple thousand miles straight. Fill up for gas and, and, and then go for it. And there were always preparations the night before. Make sure the car's in shape, tuned up. And, of course, he had to tune it himself and... uh put air in the tires himself or ourselves, he would instruct us. And uh, we have to clean it and wash it and pack it and get all the food in there. And, and then they had to put up with our wines. Dad, can we stop? We're hungry. There's a sandwich in the cooler. I don't want a sandwich. I've had four sandwiches in the last day. Can we have something different? Now imagine what it was like for Moses and Aaron. Not for a couple weeks, not for a month, but for 40 years with two to three million people. And their attitude, well, they were called the children of Israel. And so often they acted like kids, spoiled brats, whining, complaining. They had their moments of goodness, There were times when they were just awesome. They obeyed immediately. But it's it's like Moses would say, you know, let's savor this moment because there aren't many like it. Forty years of complaining, whining as they went through the desert. Now, we haven't really gotten to that part yet. It's still the preliminaries and the preparation for the move. But imagine two to three million people plus pets, children, the elderly, picking up and moving as the Lord would lead, as they saw that pillar in the wilderness. Now, if you have a map, you may want to put a uh, marker in the book of Numbers and look at a map of the Sinai Desert. It'll probably be one of the first three maps in your map index in the back. And look at the Sinai Peninsula. It's a big triangle of desert. It is flanked on two sides, the bottom borders of that triangle, by the Gulf of Suez on one side, that's the western side, the Gulf of Aqaba on the eastern side, all constituting the Red Sea. So it's that finger or triangle of land jetting out into the Red Sea. It's about 150 miles wide at the top of the triangle. It's about 250 miles long from the top to the bottom of the triangle. It is, it is desert. I mean, go west from here and just drive a while till you can't see anything. And imagine just 40 years of that. Hot, desolate place. Place where God at the same time provided for them. 
Now, Mount Sinai itself, if you've got your map and you look toward the bottom of that triangle, probably most of your Bible maps will show Mount Sinai toward the bottom. Um, I would say go up about an inch. I don't know the uh, scale in your maps, but you go up about an inch from the bottom of that triangle, you will probably see a little X that says Mount Sinai or Horeb, as it is also called in the scripture. This is where God met Moses. This is where Moses went up and spoke to God and God gave him the Ten Commandments as well as the blueprint for that odd, portable, tent-like structure of worship called the tabernacle. Now, there are several mountains that people have tried to identify as Mount Sinai, but there's really only two contenders, one toward the middle of that map and, as most believe, one toward the bottom of that map, the Arabs call it Jebel Musa. It's about 7,500 feet above sea level. And because that is a broad desert, it jets up and it looks huge uh, from the base looking up. And there's three fingers of rock that sort of point up and distinguish it from all of the other landmarks in the area. But it's got this broad plain capable of, of having two to three million people at its base. They've spent considerable time there. They're preparing now by God to get organized and march from Mount Sinai up toward Kadesh Barnea. And maybe you can find that on your map as well. And uh, that's sort of the gateway toward the promised land. It should have taken them about 11 days. According to Deuteronomy chapter 1, it took them 40 years. Now, let's have a little bit of consideration for the children of Israel. They're in sort of like shock. Yes, God delivered them from Egypt, but this is very different than Egypt. In Egypt, they had, well, they thought they had anything they wanted. At least that's the picture they painted to Moses. Oh, I remember Egypt. It was so wonderful. We had all of these fine foods. And it was, you know, everything was provided for. Well, yeah, you were slaves in Egypt. Let's get a real composite picture here. It wasn't as great as you thought. You cried out because you were in bondage for years. Oh God, please deliver us. But isn't it funny how you can look back in life and, you know, you talk about the good old days. Oh, do you remember the good old days? And, you know, it's funny how time sort of erases the facts in our minds. And it looks so pretty and beautiful as we look back, but... Oh, I talk to married couples and they will often look back to their days of being single as the good old days. Oh man, I remember I was so free. I could do whatever I want to go wherever I want. I never have to ask permission. I say, well, you know, I remember when you were single, single. we used to hang out together and I used to just cry out for a mate. How you wanted a mate to ask permission to go places or to go with that person to share your experiences together. But it's so odd. And I think one of the works of the devil is to get us to be a little bit blinded to the truth of our past, our past experiences. And I find many Christians fall into this problem. So often is this pattern. They look back to the old life. I remember before I was saved, I had all those friends. And life was so hunky-dory. Oh, really? What about the time you woke up in your own vomit after a party? You were so drunk out of your mind and your friends left you. And You could pick out some of those experiences, but we often are selective in what we remember or bring up. Now, this is what's going to happen to the children of Israel. They're in shock. And at first, they're just excited to be gone from Egypt. They're just excited to be, you know hearing from their God again and God taking care of them. But they'll lapse, they'll have their problems. Now Egypt was vastly different than the wilderness. Egypt was desert as well, except one big difference, the Nile River was the difference. The Nile River which begins up, no, it begins down in Africa, but it flows upward into Egypt and so it carries with it, coming from Uganda, where Lake Victoria is, and flowing into Egypt. When it empties out into Egypt, the Nile Delta is filled with rich soil that has been carried downstream. 
from its mouth all the way through Africa, and it empties out. Hence, all around the Nile River, it's beautiful farming communities. They would just take the water. They had as much water as they wanted to, and, and they could just water all their crops. They were coming into a land where they had to trust that God would let it rain at the appropriate time and their crops would grow as the Lord would bless the land. But here they're out in the desert and they have to trust in odd provisions like water coming from rock, food coming from the sky, and they just have to trust, hey, we're out here in the desert, God will have to take care of us. And it looked very different than Egypt as well. They were used to seeing great monuments of architecture, 80 pyramids, some Oh, the largest one, 482 feet tall. I've seen it. It's a magnificent structure to behold as you're flying into Cairo. Even on a windy day with dust in the air, you can see those pyramids. It's just striking. And I remember visiting the pyramids one day, and I thought, you know, it's my only crack at doing this. I always wanted to kind of explore the pyramids like Indiana Jones. And it was quiet around the pyramids. It was Ramadan, the month of fasting for the Muslims. And so... I kind of looked around and I had one shot at it, so I just started running up the side of the pyramid. And you can do it. It's like, uh, you know, it's, it's inclined enough so that if you bend forward, you could make it. And, and so I, I, I'm making it up almost halfway, and suddenly the police come out and they start surrounding it, yelling at me. I don't know what they're saying, so uh, I just keep going. And uh, in that great pyramid, there's a shaft that goes down, and I, I've seen pictures of it, sketches of it, and I always just wanted to say I looked down it, so I just kept running up it and uh, looked down the shaft. It was dark, didn't see anything, and the police were kind of gaining on me, so I just ran around the other side of the pyramid and, and took off. But anyway, <laughs> there's no pyramids, there's no monuments. Uh, the Temple of the Sun that they were used to uh, experiencing in Egypt, was, there's nothing out in the middle of the desert. Just barren wilderness for miles. We saw last week the census that was taken in chapter 1. And we're going to see tonight a couple of different things. In chapter 2, it's the, the camping of the children of Israel around the tabernacle. As the sons of Aaron camp around it, first of all, and then around them, the entire children of Israel, all of them camping, two to three million, in order. The census is taken for the military. The camps are set up in order according to family, according to tribe. Then the tribe of Levi in chapters 3 and 4, a census is taken of all of those who serve as priests and uh, uh, all of those who will eventually serve as priests. Two different census are taken uh, in chapters uh, 3 and 4. But we learn something. God is not haphazard. God is organized. He is a God of order. In Genesis, we read that the earth was chaotic. It was without form and void. And God took the chaos and imposed his organization on it, his order. It wasn't the other way around. He didn't take order and make chaos out of it. And so whenever God moves, we see that God is a God of order. We see that with the children of Israel. How else could two to three million people even think they could make it from Egypt to Canaan without some kind of organization? And so it is also in the church. In Corinthians, Paul writes to them, a church that was known for disorderly conduct. And Paul had to write to them because it seems like in Corinth they were getting together and somebody felt led to share a psalm and somebody felt led to share a prophecy and somebody felt led to do this and somebody felt led to do that. And so Paul writes and said, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you is a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Let all things be done decently and in order. Then there was the time that Paul sent Titus to Crete to set those things that were lacking in order. The word that he used is the same word for orthodontist. To set in order, orthos is the word, to set lives that are bent in order or in alignment with God. It's the business of God, first of all, is to take and 
out of order or disorderly life and get it lined up with his purposes. Saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Then he places us in the body of Christ so that we function, so that we're not on our own doing our own thing in the way we feel we want to do it. But that there's order, marching order in the body of Christ. I think one of the keys to living well is organization. Publicly and privately. These people had to go through the desert for 40 years and they needed organization. You know, God didn't say, well, just move whenever you feel led. You know, just get up and this tent can move when he wants and this tent can move and just go your own direction as, as you feel led. After all, let's not quench the spirit out there in the desert. They'd be dead. They required order. An example I like to use is is this, the difference between a pile of rubble, stones, glass, metal, and a building is one process, and that's organization. Impose organization upon those materials that are in a pile, and you'll have a beautiful structure. What's the difference between pieces of canvas, paints, brushes, and a beautiful painting? Organization. Get somebody who's skillful to to organize the canvas and the colors in just the right form, and it's a beautiful work of art, organization. There's a story of a visitor to a mental institution, and he saw all of these inmates in the mental institution, and they were being watched, about a hundred of them, by one guard. And the visitor said to the guard, aren't you a little bit worried that these guys may eventually get their heads together and revolt and maybe attack you? The guard laughed and said in all calmness, they're here for that very reason. They can't get their heads together and work in an organized fashion. That's why they're here. I'm not worried at all. I think, wow, you know, that's that's a scary thought. The church ought to move smoothly and in orderly as God directs the church. The Holy Spirit being the nervous system conveying to each of the members of the body of Christ marching orders. And there ought to be a beautiful unity. Now we're in Numbers chapter 2 and we see that the tribes are given their places around the tabernacle. The arrangement of the camp is given. And uh, they would first come into an area and what's the first thing they do? Set up the tabernacle. That was always the first order of business, the place of worship. God has priority. We set that up, and as soon as that is set up, then the Levites, Moses and Aaron, take their places around the tabernacle. Then the camps of Israel will uh, go around it as well. Now, as we read in chapter 2, there were four camps. There's four sides of the tabernacle. Picture a rectangle. And you've got a whole bunch of people in the perimeter, Moses and Aaron on the east side. The family of Gershon, or the Gershonites, on the west side. The family of Kohath, the priestly clan, on one side. And the sons of Merari on the other side. Then all of the rest of the people would set an order around them. And they would have their banner or flag, depending on which tribe that they were from. In verse 1, the eastern encampment is given. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. Beside the emblems of his father's house, they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. On the east side, toward the rising of the sun, those of the standard of the forces with Judah shall camp according to their armies, and Nashon and the son of Aminadab shall be the leader of the children of Judah. And his army was numbered at 74,600. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar. And Nethanel, the son of Zuar, shall be the leader of the children of Issachar. And his army was numbered at 54,400. Then comes the tribe of Zebulun. And Eliab, the son of Helon, shall be the leader of the children of Zebulun. And his army was numbered at 57,400. See, there's a lot of folks here, and it requires organization. 
The fighting men were numbered in chapter 1. So if there's a battle, they were given a marching order. But for the regular camp, there was also an order of movement, an order of camp, and an order of dismissal, according to tribe. I was reading up on bees. Their brains aren't that big. They're not big to begin with. The brain of a bee is about the size of the head of a pin. Yet, these bees are amazing in the way they work together. You see, bees in an average hive will build about 10,000 cells for the production of honey. In addition to about 12,000 cells for the deposition of larvae. And they'll build a special chamber for the queen bee. When it's very hot and the honey inside, the, uh, excuse me, the wax inside is in danger of melting and sort of disrupting the uh, equilibrium of the hive, all of these little bees in, in mass will swarm at the entrance of the hive in a right formation and they'll all fan with their wings in a way that would put an electric fan to shame and they'll cool the inside of that hive by pulling air from the, uh, the outside and acting sort of like a venturi, taking it at a big opening and, and shoveling it down into a small opening and forcing that wind from their wings to cool the wax. All organized, all in order. Has to be that way for them to survive, to produce what they produce, and for the continuation of their species. Fabulous, the way God has put that order. Well, look at all these thousands of people that are camped around the tabernacle. Verse 9, all who numbered according to their armies of the forces of Judah, 186,400. And these shall break camp first. Now you've got to get a picture of this. This is like a huge city. Two to three million people. Four sides of the tabernacle. And uh, 12 tribes of Israel, each having a standard or an ensign, a banner, with some sign of their tribe. So that wherever you are, basically, in the camp around the tabernacle, you can look up, sort of like street signs or city signs, and you can see where you are in conjunction to the tabernacle or all the other tribes. You could just look up and look for those banners with the signs of the tribes. Now, there were 12 tribes, but there were also four major banners where you'd have three tribes camping on one side underneath a field banner, three on the other side with their banner, three on the other side and three on the other side. So you had four camps, three of the tribes sort of gathered together under one banner, and so you could look and see these major field banners as well, and you'd know what side of the tabernacle you are on. And the first side that is given, there's three tribes given, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, under the kingpin tribe of Judah, the field sign, or in Hebrew, the Degel. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us this, but Kyle and Delich, commentators on the Old Testament, using rabbinical sources, say that the rabbis say that there were colors on these flags, and the signs are even given. For instance, the tribe of Judah uh, had a green flag with a lion on it. So when you look up and you see that big flag waving green and you see the lion, you say, oh, that's Judah over there. I know what side we're on. So you look up and you see the lion of Judah in the distance. Now, keep that in mind because we're going to talk about all of these tribes as we make it through the end of this chapter and piece it all together because I do believe there is... Typical predictive prophecy, even in the arrangement of the camps around the tabernacle that are a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. But uh, you notice these three tribes here, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. That's the fourth, fifth, and sixth sons of Jacob by Leah, his wife. Remember the gal that he didn't want to marry but married anyway because uh, Laban did a switcheroonie and uh, had to marry her first and then later on got Rachel. Well, these are some of the sons of Leah. Now, the east is the first side that goes. It's the first side that camps. It's the first side that picks up. 
You see reference in the scripture, and besides the scripture, in a lot of ancient texts and history to the east side. You say, well, is there something special or significant why people face the east when they worship and so forth? Well, east was the direction of orientation. The Jews had what they called the four corners of the earth, which were directions. But they all took their orientation from the east for one simple reason. The sun always rises from the east. So you'd always know what side you're on by seeing the way the sun traverses or the way the earth orbits around the sun. It seems like it's rising. So the east is that sign of orientation. The dawning of the day comes from the east and um, you take your directions from there. So the east goes first. Verse 10. On the south side shall be the standard of the forces with Reuben. According to their armies, the leader of the children of Reuben shall be Elazur, the son of Shedeur. And his army was numbered to 46,500. Those who came next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon. And the leader of the children of Simeon shall be Shalumiel, the son of this guy with a fancy name. And his army was numbered to 59,300. Then comes the tribe of Gad. And the leader of the children of Gad shall be uh, Eliasaph, the son of Reuel. And his army was numbered at 45,650. And all who were numbered according to their armies of the forces with Reuben, 151,450. And they shall be the second to break camp. Three tribes, Reuben, Simeon, Gab. According to Kyle and Delish, again using rabbinical sources, this flag was a red flag with the face of a man. So you've got a lion and you've got a man. That's Reuben's sign or Degel, field banner. Those are the two that we've covered so far. Now Reuben was the firstborn of Leah, the wife that he didn't, he wasn't all that stoked on. He wasn't all that into, but that was his first wife. Reuben was the firstborn. Simeon was the secondborn. Who is the thirdborn? Levi. But Levi is not included here because he has a special priestly function. There's no census given of him. He's got his own place around the perimeter of the tabernacle. And so um, Gad is mentioned here in verse 14. He's the oldest son of Leah's handmaid. Remember that whole mess? They had kids and then they got jealous and they gave uh, to Jacob their handmaids, these gals who would bear children in their name and so Jacob had a whole bunch of these kids, and this is the oldest son of Leah's handmaid. And they followed Judah in the march, in the camp. They broke camp second. And you're going to see that the movement is clockwise, the setting and the breaking up of the camp and the marching arrangement. Verse 17. And the tabernacle of meeting shall move out with the camp of the Levites in the middle of the camps as they camp, so they shall move out, everyone in his place, by their standards. Now Levi, interesting Interesting clan. Levi was the tribe that slaughtered 3,000 people in the desert. Yet here they're a priestly tribe that are very zealous for God. When Moses came off Jebel Musa, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai with the law, what did Moses find the children of Israel doing? Worshiping before a golden calf in orgies and revelry. And he came up to Aaron and so what happened here? He goes, well, hey, listen, we just, you know, uh, lit this fire, and this calf came out from the fire all by itself. It was amazing. It was a miracle. It was on Unsolved Mysteries, Moses. You would have just blown your mind if you were here last week. Moses knew really what had happened, and so he said, he and Aaron, um, whoever's on the Lord's side, you know, come over here. And, and the whole tribe of Levi came, and they were instructed to put to death those that were the idolaters in the camp who caused the idolatry. Back in the book of Exodus, 3,000 fell. Here we see the tribe of Levi as the priestly tribe. So, here's the picture. After the eastern camp broke up under Judah with its three tribes altogether, then the southern camp broke up under Reuben with three more tribes. You have six tribes marching. After six tribes, the entire tribe of Levi, the Gershonites, the sons of Merari, and the Kohathites, these are clans in that tribe, all break up together and they march. So you have six tribes, the tribe of Levi, and then the other six tribes, or the two camps left. That's how the march was. So the tribe of Levi was there right in the middle. So after the east and the south came the tribe of Levi. 
Now, at this point, you say, now, wait a minute. Why are they then called the 12 tribes of Israel? You got 13. If you have six and six and a tribe in the middle, there's 13 tribes, not 12. And that's an interesting uh, perception. Joseph, when he was in Egypt, Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, born to him by Rachel, had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, you remember. And when uh, Jacob and the other kids came to Egypt and Joseph said, Dad, I want you to meet my two kids. God has given me here in the land of Egypt. He had Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob was an old guy, but he blessed them. And he said, let them take my name. And so it was a double portion that was given to Joseph. And instead of the tribe of Joseph, they were given separate tribal allotments in Israel. It's still all under the tribe of Joseph. He's that 12th, but they're given a double portion. So you see arrangements of the tribe of Israel, always called the 12 tribes, but you see them arranged differently. And even the listing is different in different places in the Old and the New Testament. In fact, in the book of Revelation, you have the 12 tribes of Israel listed, everyone except the tribe of Dan. And there's an interesting reason for it, and we don't have time to get into it tonight since it's not in our context. But uh, actually, there would be 13 altogether, uh, or 12 with that double portion given to Joseph. Now, verse 18. On the west side shall be the standard with the forces of Ephraim, according to their armies. And the leader of the children of Ephraim shall be Elishama, the son of uh, Amihud. And his army was numbered at 40,500. Next to him comes the tribe of Manasseh. And the leader of the children of Manasseh shall be Gamaliel, the son of uh, this guy. And his army was numbered at 32,200. Then comes the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin. And the leader of the children of Benjamin shall be Abidan, the son of Gideoni. And his army was numbered at 35,400. All who numbered according to their armies of the forces with Ephraim, 108,100. They shall be the third to break camp. Now this is on the west side. These three tribes are under the field banner of Ephraim. It was a gold flag, the rabbis tell us, and it was the symbol of an ox or of a calf. Keep that in mind. Now, all of these three tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin, mentioned in verse 22, trace their ancestry to Jacob through Rachel, again, the favorite wife of Jacob. Ephraim will play a major part in the leadership of Israel in the future. In fact, Joshua, who becomes the successor of Moses, comes from the tribe of Ephraim. Now we get to the northern encampment in verse 25. The standard of the forces with Dan shall be on the north side according to their armies, and the leader of the children of Dan shall be these people. And his army was numbered at 62,700. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher. And the leader of the children of Asher shall be... Uh, these other people here, and his army was numbered at 41,500. Then comes the tribe of Naphtali, and the leader of Naphtali shall be Ahira, the son of Enan. And his army was numbered at 53,400, all who were numbered of the forces with Dan, 157,600. They shall break camp last with their standards. This, according to the rabbis, is a red and white flag, the tribe of Dan. Three tribes under the field ensign, the Degel of Dan, a red and white flag. The insignia is that of an eagle. So you have an interesting kind of flag set up. Each tribe has its own flag, but there's a higher and bigger field ensign. Again, the Degel in Hebrew. And you've got on one side a lion. Then you have a man, an ox, and an eagle. And those are the ensigns that surround the tabernacle, these four insignias. Now, I don't want you to turn to it, but I have a portion of the uh, vision of Ezekiel. The reason I made mention of the insignias, according to the rabbis, is because there's a couple of other scriptures in the Bible that also have these signs around them. Ezekiel is seeing a vision in chapter 1. He's by uh, the river Kibar and he sees a vision and he sees these wild creatures with wheels turning and they're floating above the earth and he tries to describe them and it's 
uh, weird to try to picture them in your mind, but he says in Ezekiel chapter 1, these four living creatures. Each one had four faces, each one had four wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion. And on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces, their wings stretched upward. Two wings of each one touched one another and two covered their bodies. So here you have four living creatures. Each one has four faces. The same setup is around the tabernacle. Now you move that forward into the book of Revelation and John sees a vision of also four living creatures in the throne room of God. He's caught up into heaven. Revelation chapter 4. Let me read this portion. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. One sat on the throne. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four elders, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, They had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Wild to even picture this. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Now, here you have in a few different places the mention of these ensigns. What exactly they mean, we can't be definitive on, but I have a guess. Here's my theory. I think that the camps of Israel, like the vision of Ezekiel, like the vision of John, are all somehow a portrait, a multifaceted picture of Jesus Christ in his ministry. In the New Testament, we have four Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew, as we know, was written to the Jewish people, showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one to fulfill all Jewish expectation, coming from the tribe of Judah himself, fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah. Now, Mark paints an entirely different picture of Jesus. It's an accurate account, but... He talks about Jesus and he shows him in the light of being a servant. Like the ox, the beast of burden, or the calf. Out there to work, to pull the plow, so to speak. Then you come to Luke and he often uses the term the son of man. And Luke is written for the Greek mind to show that Jesus is the perfect person, the perfect man. As the Greeks always look toward man. And all of their gods were images of men. Jesus, the Son of Man, God's ideal man. Then, of course, John is an entirely different gospel from the three synoptics. And he is shown as the Son of God in all of his deity, like the eagle above everybody else. Again, perhaps those four faces. A lion, the servant, the ox, the man, and the eagle. All a picture of Jesus Christ from four different angles. And I think that in all of these things, you've got the Holy Spirit in the background sort of smiling. As he puts his fingerprints in different portions of the Bible, and as we uncover them, we go, ooh, wow. Why four Gospels? Why pictured like this? It all matches beautifully. Now, John never knew Ezekiel personally. Ezekiel was dead long before John ever lived. The tabernacle was gone before any of these guys were around. And yet, here we see the same four faces appearing. It's beautiful. Here you've got 66 books. 
written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, three different continents, three different languages, writing about controversial subjects like the origin of man, the purpose of life, creation. Written by people who were kings, shepherds, different walks of life, but all beautiful synthesis together. We see the weaving together of God's Word as men were moved or inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the more you look at the Scripture, you see a seamless garment. You don't see a bunch of writings piled in where people disagree with each other. You see a beautiful composite picture. Now let's go to verse 33. But the Levites were not numbered among the children of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards... So they broke camp, each one by his family, according to their father's houses. Now, so far, so good. They're obeying everything God said. Enjoy the moment. Relish it right now. Think, oh, man, look at these guys. Because it's not going to last. According to human nature, they will begin their gripes, their complaining soon. First, oh, this is accelerating. This is exciting to be out here just led by God. But soon it will degenerate into complaining. Now, notice something. Each one is given a different function, as we're going to see in this chapter and in the next chapter. The tribes go in order. The sons of Levi have their order and their specific ministries. There are some 20 years old and above in the tribes surrounding the tabernacle that are fighting men, but not everybody's a fighting person. There's younger people, there's older people, there's women, there's children, and so forth. Each one, though, has his or her place in this community of God. Now, there's a lesson for us. Not only is there to be order among God's people, but there's to be involvement among God's people. Every person has some function in the body of Christ. The church is not a spectator sport, as we've often said. It's not where, yeah, this is sort of like a club. You know, you pay your dues and you watch the thing happen. No. The real satisfaction, where the action is in your life, is when you decide to discover whatever gift God has given you and yield your body, Romans 12, to God as a living sacrifice and let God manifest His life through you to others. And that just blows your mind to see what God will do as you surrender your life to the Lord. In fact... It is not healthy for you or for the church to be a spectator. You harm yourself and you rob your church from the gifts that God has uniquely given to you to function in the body of Christ. So hopefully you're contributing your love, your time, your resources to bless the people of God that are around you. I had a couple come up to me a few years back. Oh, it's probably eight years now. And the way they phrased their introduction to me was quite interesting. They said, great to worship with you this morning. We're sort of shopping around and we're just seeing what you have to offer. Now, I'm not one to be too diplomatic. And so I said, well, what do you have to offer? Well, what do you mean? I said, well, it's a two-way street. We're not a cereal on a cereal box section, you just look on the back, oh, let's see what, okay, whoa, too much fructose. <laughs> now, I, I do admit, each church has its own personality, and you have to decide where God has planted you. Calvary Chapel is not for everyone. I thank God for that. I thank God for all of the other ministries and churches that God has raised up in this community, godly, growing ministries. We ought to be praying for them. And supporting them. But God, I believe God plants the hearts of his people in different places, different camps. Doesn't mean, well, we have the best ensign and we're the best camp. We're all God's people, but you have to decide where God planted you. Then you get involved. You plant yourself and you give yourself to that fellowship and get involved and offer your talents, your resources, your gifts. Say, oh, well, Calvary, you know, I, this is just too big. Hey, Think of two to three million people, folks. That's a big church out there in the desert. 
But the Bible says, he who has friends must himself be friendly. Easy to make friends around here. People do it all the time. Reach out. Offer yourself. Be vulnerable. Take a risk. Involve yourself in somebody's life relationally. So we see here that God is a God of order, that Israel didn't march around as a free-for-all, and that people got involved according to their gifts. And we're going to kind of expand on this as we go through numbers. Now, before we move on to the next chapter, let me ask you a question. What is your banner? Now, I'm asking that in a spiritual sense. What is the ensign that you rally under? How do you identify yourself? Is your banner a denomination? Is your banner a system? Is your banner a little doctrine or practice that you've just got to make sure everybody does? Or you'll judge everybody by some other affiliation? I'll tell you what, our banner ought to be nothing but Christ. He's our banner. You are complete in him. And that's what we rally around, the person of Jesus Christ. Our theology, the Bible. Our organization, the body of Christ. This is part of the body here at Calvary Chapel. It's only a small part of it. It's much bigger than what we encompass. And so we ought to remember that. Because I think a lot of Christians forget their standard. I mean the ensign, the degel, the field sign. They fight for such petty, dumb things. They're ready to take out their Bibles and just sort of chop one another up. Over non-essentials. Now, there are essentials in the faith. I believe in the essentials of historic Orthodox Christianity, and we ought to defend the faith, put up a good fight, as Jude said. But then there's a lot of peripheral issues. It's funny what people will just push up as the most important, and they'll fight each other. There's a great story in the famous Battle of Trafalgar with Lord Nelson of England. He was in his ship, and he discovered that a couple of his top officers were fighting, arguing, quarreling, bickering. And he ordered them to the deck and had them look out at the French fleet. And he said, gentlemen, there is your enemy. Now shake hands and get together. Because he discovered that as long as these two top officers didn't get together, but they were bickering that their energy would be consumed and they wouldn't have the energy to fight the real enemy. Listen, your Christian brother who disagrees with you on some petty point of doctrine, it's not your enemy. Well, I've got to convince him. Why? If you're right, let God convince him. Drop it. Leave it at that. Lest the body of Christ be so fragmented that we're not fighting the real enemy. Now chapter 3. This is the ministry chapter. Aaron and the Levites are in view here. God is preparing Israel to march. Now, keep this in mind. You're going to see him marching. All of this is preparatory. I want to, I want to remark about that. Preparation is important. A lot of times we just sort of want to hear a call and run. Just go out there and get busy and do it without the necessary preparation. So I want to balance out the need to be involved with the need to be prepared. Part of the preparing is on-the-job training, but don't despise the days of preparation. Enjoy the days of preparation. Enjoy the feeding and the preparation. Even that you get here. Listen, I talk to pastors who have left this church. They're pastoring their own churches now, and they, oh man, I remember back to the times when we just got fed and just had the word ministered to us, and oh, how I miss those times. I wish I would have paid more attention. So enjoy the time of preparation and feeding now. Don't worry, you'll, you'll get out there. God will use you. But don't be in too much of a hurry. Allow God to prepare you for marriage, for ministry. Some people are so anxious. You know, you see that young gal, she goes, Man, I've got to get married. I'm already 18 years old, Lord. I've got to find a husband. Now, we see that um, the tribe of Levi in chapter 3 and chapter 4 were given to Aaron to assist him. Uh, they had the oversight of the tabernacle. They're excluded from the census in the previous chapter. Now they have their own census. These priests were representatives. They were to represent people before God. That was the role of the priest. So the high priest would have 
uh, on his shoulder, the two stones with the six names inscribed on one and six on the other. And then he'd have the breastplate over his heart with 12 stones, each representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he would represent the people before God. Later on, you see that they perform functions of a judge as they settle the land. Uh, In the book of Judges, a little later on, they settle difficult cases. But right now, they are to represent the people before God in sacrifice and in relationship and fellowship. Now, the tribe of Levi is not going to have a piece of land in the future. They'll be given cities. And just as the tribes of Israel come in the land and they're given designated areas of land, the the tribe of Levi will have a city within different tribes of Israel called Levitical cities. They'll be supported by the tithes of the people, the tribes of Israel around them, and then their job by course or by turn is to take care of the tabernacle. Now verse 1. Now these are the records of Aaron and Moses when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. And these are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he consecrated to minister as priests. Nadab and Abihu had died before the Lord. When they offered profane fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar ministered as priests in the presence of Aaron, their father. You know what I like about the Bible? It never hides flaws. When people sin, even pastor's kids here, it says, here's their sin, don't do that. I like that about the Bible. It doesn't embellish the biography of its heroes. It tells it like it is. Much like Franklin Graham's biography, if you read Rebel with the Cause, and he talks about his previous life, he doesn't try to paint himself as some hero, but he tells you the truth. Well, God does that with his people. I, over the years, have studied books on photography. I used to do that for a living. I used to be a freelance photographer. And one of the books that I like is, I think the guy's name is Yusuf Karsh, world-famous photographer, photographed some of the most famous people in the last uh, many years, black and white photos. But in all of his pictures, he does it with such detail and shadow work that the flaws of all of the people that he takes are very obviously displayed. In fact, on most of his photographs, you look close and you go, oh my. <laughs> look at this guy's mug up close. It's a lot different than Time magazine would have airbrushed it. And the Bible does that with its heroes. Abraham, a man of faith. Oh, but he lapsed in faith. David, the king of Israel, man after God's own heart. Oh, yes, but he had a problem with other women and murder and a few other major sins. God always tells us the truth. So we have these Two pastor's kids, Nadab and Abihu, and we already read about them, how they died before the Lord because they offered profane fire or unconsecrated fire. Now, we don't know exactly what happened. Let me just give you the rundown. Probably what happened is they got lazy. You see, there was a fire that burned out in the outer court of the tabernacle on the altar of sacrifice, and they were to go get a coal from that altar bring it into the holy place after ritual cleansing and take that live coal, that fire, and put incense on it and burn incense before the Lord representing the prayers of his people. So they offered some unholy fire. Probably they kindled their own fire within the holy place instead of going all the way out, going through the cleansing. They just, you know, automated it. Did it a shortcut. And so they're worshiping the right God in the wrong way And God killed them. Now, there's a valuable lesson here in the fear of the Lord, isn't there? And doing things God's way. And it says that uh, in the scripture back in Exodus that God killed them. We read about a little bit um, in the past. And uh, they presumed upon God. Now, before we move on to those who are aspiring to the ministry, let me give you a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He talked to young ministers and he said, If you plan to be lazy, there are plenty of avocations in which you will not be wanted. But above all, you are not wanted in the Christian ministry. The man who finds the ministry an easy life will also find that it brings a hard death. So God gave instructions to these priests. You don't just come in and do things however you want to. 
There's a certain order in your ministry to follow as well. Remember the sons of uh, Eli later on in Samuel? How they took the meat hook and they, when they were boiling up the meat for the sacrifice, they put their meat hook in, they grabbed the best portions for themselves, causing the children of Israel to despise this whole ritual of offering to God. And God also showed his displeasure with them. The Bible says in the book of James, Be not many masters, knowing that you will receive the greater condemnation or judgment. So, these sons of Levi, God killed them. Now, does God still do this today? That's a good question. Not in the same way. I think that God at different times when um, different for lack of a better term, dispensations or eras sort of were inaugurated, God showed his response to a lack of purity. For instance, here with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, these two sons of Aaron were killed before the Lord at the beginning of the theocracy. Then during the monarchy under King David, there was Uzzah, the guy who touched the ark to steady it when it was falling over. They didn't carry it the right way, and God struck him dead. In the book of Acts, the beginning of the church age, who did God kill them. Right. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. They lied. And it was the first time that impurity entered the church and God showed his obvious displeasure. Now, if God did exactly that, exactly the same way, we'd have a whole lot more funerals, I believe, today. Because imagine if, like Ananias and Sapphira, you presumed and you came in and You raised your hands and you said, I surrender all. And let's say you hadn't surrendered all. Well, you would be slain in the spirit, literally. And you wouldn't get up again. It wouldn't be a blessing. It wouldn't be like, ooh, that was a great experience. You'd go down and never get up and they'd bury you. However, in the New Testament, Paul does allude to the fact that there are some in the body of Christ that treat the Lord's Supper contemptuously or are living in some kind of outward sin, and Paul warns them, lest God destroy them. We read in um, 1 Corinthians that those many had died and were sick among them because they didn't take the Lord's Supper the right way. All right, let's go on to verse 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, present them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. And they shall attend to his needs and the needs of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of meeting to do the work of the tabernacle. A priesthood. Are there priests today? In in, In the strict New Testament sense, where are the priests today? You are the priests. The Bible says that all New Testament believers are a royal priesthood, 1 Peter tells us. A nation of priests. So instead of having one group of people representing the rest, like in the Old Testament, that's the Old Testament model, we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who represents us before the Father, and all of us have access to God like the priests. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So for anybody to establish a priesthood and call it a New Testament concept is really reverting back to the Old Testament. Now, Jesus, in Revelation, writes to the church of Ephesus and commends them and then faults them. And then he says, but there's something that you have and I commend you for. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Not you hate the Nicolaitans, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You see the difference? Not hating the person, but hating the deeds, the doctrine, and so forth. The Nicolaitans, probably, it was a practice. The Greek word nikao means to conquer, and laos is laity, to conquer or to lord over the laity. It was probably, it's thought to be a system whereby lay people had to go through some special mediator or priest. The reason Jesus said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, is that whenever you have a hierarchy that everybody else has to go through, you are saying that certain people are closer to God or more important than the rest. And Jesus says, I hate those deeds. I hate that ideology. I hate that system. Because the New Testament brings all of us close in relationship and intimacy with Jesus Christ. 
So the Old Testament model is not the one we're to follow, but the New Testament that all of us are priests together. Verse 8. They shall attend to the furnishings of the tabernacle. Ooh, look at it. It's already after 8. Let's finish this up quickly. And to the needs of the children of Israel to do the work of the tabernacles. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are given entirely to him from among the children of Israel. So she shall appoint Aaron and his sons. They shall attend to their priesthood. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So God meant business. Verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified myself. All the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast, they shall be mine. I am the Lord. What's he talking about? Well, back in Exodus, he spared the firstborn of Israel and he judged the firstborn of Egypt. And because God said, I spared the firstborn, he's saying, all of your firstborn are mine, and this is what you do. You take the entire tribe of Levi, and they will be a substitute. And they will be dedicated to me as sort of surrogate firstborns. The entire tribe will represent the firstborn among you. You let them minister before me instead of taking your sons uh, to minister. The tribe of Levi shall do it. And uh, that is the way that you dedicate your firstborn to me, by letting the tribe of Levi minister in the tabernacle. Let's see, we're on chapter, uh, well, we're going to have to stop right here. Let's close with this thought. God, because he redeems us, wants our very best. He wants the first of our flocks, of our herds, of our produce. He wants the firstborn. We dedicate everything to God. We often say we dedicate everything to God. But I wonder if God required it from us like he did to Abraham. Sacrifice it all. Get rid of it all. How we would react. Not that he will, but what if he did? Now the children that you have, that God has given you. They're on loan from God to you. And every Sunday we dedicate children before the Lord. We're saying, along with these parents, these children belong to God. It's more than just a prayer of dedication. It's a lifestyle of the parents. That's why we pray for the kids, but we also pray for the parents because if you say, yeah, I better start coming to church. My kids need religion. But if you don't live it in the home, it's going to be fruitless. Charles Spurgeon used to say, before a child reaches seven, teach him all the way to heaven. Better still, the work will thrive if he learns it before he's five. He has to learn it by precept from the parents and see it lived out throughout a life. You'd see, yesterday, Saturday, I did a wedding and I had such a blast. It was a couple that I had known. They'd been in the church for many years. The reason it was such a blast is because of the dedication this young couple had for Jesus Christ. They just loved the Lord. And they loved the Lord and their parents both loved the Lord. And they both were raised by godly parents who dedicated them at a young age and then lived out the precepts they taught those kids. And it was the consistent example taught by the parents that caused, I believe, those kids to be what they were. And to see him come together and just glorify Jesus was so awesome and at one point in the ceremony, I was given a little, beforehand, a little key on a chain, and uh, the groom didn't know it was coming. The bride gave me this little key on a chain before the um, service. I took it, and then I explained it. After their vows as husband and wife, I held this up, and I said, Michelle has given me this key on the chain that she might present this to you, Rusty. You see, when she was 14 years old, she made a promise to her father that just as her father dedicated her to the Lord, that she would dedicate herself and remain pure sexually. She made that promise that she would remain pure for her husband to honor her father. And she went out and she bought a tiny little gold key, put it on a chain and wore it all the time. Took it off before her wedding, presented it to her husband. On the day of the wedding, I have kept my promise. I have been pure. I have given myself to God. And it was that godly example of the dedication of those parents, that those kids could grow up in that manner. I thought, 
yes. That's the way it ought to be. That's beautiful. So parents, dedicate those children to God, pray for them, and then live out that example, consistent example before them. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we have a tremendous privilege with the children that you have given us to prepare them for the time when they will be on their own and totally depend on you. That's what we want for them, to totally depend on you. Lord, I pray that our lives would be marked by order and organization. That the Holy Spirit would convey to us, to the body of Christ, what it is exactly that Jesus wants us to do. What ministries, what gifts we are to operate for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the edification of your body. Lord, I pray that we would be involved in building up those around us. That we would come, not as consumers shopping for all the ingredients that will so please us, but being involved to build others up, to be used where we're most needed, according to the gifts you've given us. Lord, even as the children of Israel always had the tabernacle in the center, I pray that we would always have our worship of you as central. And that we would not dictate to you how we think we ought to do it, but let you dictate to us how you would be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Lord, thank you for each other. Thank you for this fellowship, these brothers and sisters you've given to us. Help us, Lord, to enjoy these days of preparation. Prepare us, Father, for those mates that you have for us, those ministries, those occupations that you have for each one. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. 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 Amen.